history is full of examples of how one death can change the course of humanity. So just consider one with me. It's the summer of 1914. A man named Franz Ferdinand, an archduke and heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, is making a diplomatic visit to Sarajevo in Bosnia. And he and his wife arrive in Sarajevo on a Sunday morning, and they're immediately placed in this six-car motorcade. And the archduke and his wife are placed in the second car. The top is rolled down in order that the citizens and the people of Sarajevo could see and celebrate and receive this archduke that's ruling over them. But chaos quickly ensues along the way. They soon make it to the central police station there in Sarajevo and a member of the Black Hand terrorist group who is opposed to the Austro-Hungarian Empire for a variety of reasons uh, throws a grenade at Archduke Franz Ferdinand's car. And his driver is quite alert, so he sees this grenade leave the terrorist's hands, and he speeds the car up and basically passes underneath the grenade. The grenade falls under the wheelbase of the third car, exploding that one and causing injuries and damage. But not long after, the driver is not terribly alert and takes a wrong turn on the streets of Sarajevo down an alley, and it just so happens right next to that alley or really along the alley is another 19-year-old terrorist, a guy named Gavrilo Princip. He hates the Austro-Hungarian Empire, seizes upon his chance to murder the royal family, pulls out a gun, and shoots them dead. And if you know the story, it's only a few weeks later that this one death ignites a series of events that leads to World War I that plunged, for all intents and purposes, the world into darkness at that time. One murder leading to a change for so many other people. And in a another sense, we see something similar in our text today, because what we come to is not just the first murder in all the Bible. We do see that. We come to the first death in all the Bible, in these tragic and heinous and offensive circumstances as Cain is going to kill his brother Abel. And it's reminding us right from the outset of life outside of the garden just how far gone humanity already is in their sin. Because remember where we left off last week, Adam and Eve were banished from God's garden. There in Eden, he had pronounced these curses, these declarations on Adam, on Eve, and the serpent. And if you just look down or maybe look back to chapter 3, verse 15, what he ended in his declaration to the serpent was... He just promised there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall snap at his heel. And we said last week that in a, in a very true sense, that verse, Genesis 3.15, is the key text in all of Old Testament history. Because at a very foundational level, everything that follows Genesis 3.15 is little more than an outworking of the war between the seed of the serpent and the war between the seed of the woman. And we're going to see that worked out even in our text today. Because what our text is telling us is that there are only, of course, two families in which any person can ever live. You can only be righteous or unrighteous, believing or unbelieving. Not just that, there can only be two responses to who God is. You can worship Him or be at war with Him. And so the theme of this text really is the war begins between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The cosmic fight of the ages is commencing in our text. And why we want to see chapter 4 and chapter 5 next to each other is it expands out the consequences of sin. 
Because we're going to see this in three different movements. How we're going from a sinful son to a sinful city to a sinful race. That's what we're going to see along the way this morning. So first, the sinful son. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain. Some of you maybe can remember the time when you held your firstborn child, or you can remember a time when you visited an individual in the hospital, this mother who has just had her firstborn child, and when the baby's in her grip, there's this, there's this genuine sense, not just of joy, but of expectation. What's this child going to become? Hopes, dreams, and aspirations that the parent has uh, for the baby. And in Hebrew culture, when they name their child, the name was illustrative of what they hoped their child would become, or maybe even who they thought prophetically their child actually was. And if you notice with Cain, it sounds, for the, it sounds like the Hebrew word for create or gotten, which is why you see at the end of verse 1, Eve says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There's a raging debate on the Hebrew phrases there at the end of verse 1, because it can actually be quite negative, where Eve says... Lord created the first man, now I have created the second man, reveling in her creative power. That's totally a possible way to take the text. I don't think that's actually the right way given the context because there is a desire to submit to the help of the Lord. Also this idea that, of course, for Eve, she's heard the promise. It's the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. So who exactly does she think Cain is? The serpent crusher comes. High expectation, earnest eagerness, hopes and dreams. This is it. The serpent crusher is here. I have got, I have created with God's help, the serpent crusher. And of course, we know the story. We just read it. Cain is a crusher, not just a serpent crusher, however. As we see as verse 2 continues, Eve gives birth to Cain's brother Abel. And look at the end of verse 2. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. There's something interesting in, obviously, Abel's name too. His name means fleeting. And where, where Cain's name proves to be this kind of ironic, prophetic name for what he about, is about ready to do. Abel's name is actually quite prophetic. You kind of wonder what was going through Adam and Eve's mind when they named their child a vapor in the wind. Because, of course, he's not going to be long for this world and his relationship with his brother. And you can begin to see the divide between Abel and Cain just noticing in their jobs. Abel is a shepherd. He is embodying work before the fall, tending, keeping, lordship over the animals. Where what is Cain? He is a worker of the ground, embodying work that is cursed subsequent to the fall. You're already kind of getting this idea there that there are two seeds at war with one another already in just their vocations themselves. And if you're a fan of detective dramas or police procedurals, you know that whenever a murder is committed, the investigators quite quickly, as they begin to kind of suss out the suspect, uh, they want to figure out the motive for the crime. And we get the motive for the coming crime, notice in verse 3 through 4. You'll see in verse 3 and 4 that Cain and Abel come to make offerings before the Lord. Cain's offering is a grain offering, a fruitful offering. Abel's offering is an animal sacrifice. One is bloodless and one is bloody. And then we'll look at what we find in the end of verse 4 through 5, that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, 
But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So kids, why was God pleased with Abel's offering and not Cain's? Students, what is it about what we just saw that means God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's? Now maybe you've been taught before that it was in the offering itself. One was bloodless, one was bloody. One was basically a minimalist offering, one was a maximalist offering. But what you need to know is that's not the right way of taking the difference. Because the Old Testament law goes on to say that both of those offerings were acceptable to the Lord. Hebrews 11 tells us what the problem was. It wasn't with the offering itself, it was with the offerer. One offered it in faith. One didn't offer it in faith. Cain thus had his offering spurned and Abel's offering accepted to the Lord. And so kids, you always want to know from the beginning of your devotion to the Lord, of your following after Jesus Christ, students, you as well, that worshiping God, offerings of sacrifices unto the Lord in worship is not some sort of chore that we're meant to check off our spiritual checklist. I think God is ever pleased by such obligatory, dutiful action. So often true, isn't it? Even in our doctrine of worship, we can so focus on the externals that we forget it's the internals of worship that matter most. That we can have the externals right, as Cain did, but his heart was far from the Lord, and so God wasn't pleased. And God sees Cain in this moment. You know, he notices he's angry, his face has fallen, and so like a good, loving father, he says, hey, what's going on? Cain, look at verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's a war afoot, a battle going on. Sin, one Hebrew commentator on this text, or actually ancient rabbinical commentary would say, sin is the demon at the door. Uh, Because the idea here, even in the Hebrew, is that of a demonic influence. That sin is this crouching tiger and hidden dragon lurking around the corner of every person's heart. And if you don't kill it, it will kill you. Students, here's the earliest instruction of how to wage war in life under God's lordship against sin. You don't play with it, you slay it. The more you play with sin, the more it's going to kill you. The more you trivialize sin the more it's going to lead you astray. And so Cain receives this instruction. Cain, stop playing around with the sin. You need to kill it. Of course, Cain's getting ready to kill something. Actually, he's going to kill someone instead because he doesn't slay the sin. A good friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer in his early 20s. He was actually the best man at my wedding. And when he went in to get the a diagnosis and prognosis, as sometimes happens in such situations, the doctor, maybe just because of his age, was seemingly beating around the bush and telling him what the results came back as. And so he interrupted along the way and says, Doc, just shoot me straight. Just just tell it to me bluntly. And there's a sense in which that's exactly what happens in verse 8 in this first crime, this first murder in human history. There's no, like, divine game of clue that comes along Here's when it happened in the day. Here's the location of the crime. Here's the weapon of choice for the crime. Notice what it simply says. In verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then what happens, if you have eyes to see, is almost like a review of how God interacted with Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. 
Because God comes along, you'll notice, and asks Cain a question in verse 9. Where is Abel, your brother? Just like he cried out to Adam, his father, Adam, where are you? Well, Cain begins to deflect, doesn't he? He even like lies through his teeth. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Just as the Lord had asked Eve after her fall into sin, tasting the forbidden fruit, notice what he says to Cain in verse 10. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the field, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. There's an increase in the consequence here, if you notice. He has said to Adam, after Adam's fall into sin, Cursed is the ground because of you. Do you see what he said to Cain, though? You are cursed. From the ground. So heinous is this sin, taking the lifeblood of your brother. Not just that, you'll no longer get a home. You're to be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And just like, you know, along the way when Adam and Eve were trying to reconcile what had just happened, they kind of quickly slide into this pattern that's marked humanity. You know, they're blaming each other. The spiritual blame game of accusation. Well, you gave me the woman and the serpent made me do it. Well, Cain's response to God is actually quite indicative of a normal human pattern when sin enters the stage. Notice what he says in verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. It's the sentence, not the sin, that's driving him crazy. It's the punishment, not the actual transgression itself that bothers Cain. He's not like David later on in Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned. He says, Lord... These consequences are too great for me. Someone's going to kill me. And so instead of repenting of his sin and coming to the Lord and turning from it, he just wants, and even in some way seems to expect, God is going to protect him, lest he too be killed. And you can understand the kind of arrogance and pride that you must have. You've just killed your brother, and your greatest worry is, well, someone's going to come along and kill me. You've got to protect me too. So what would have been better for God to do, maybe, or maybe more expected, I should say, is a thunderbolt burst forth from heaven and strike Cain where he stood. But God doesn't do that, does he? Do you see the mercy and this kind of common grace he has on Cain in verse 15 and following? God says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's two things that you want to notice about that provision and protection of the Lord. The first of which is he placed a mark on Cain. You know, as I prepared for Genesis along the way, I, I get oftentimes a lot of our children and students coming up to me during the week, and they're asking very random questions that clearly they've had for as long as they can remember about the book of Genesis. And one I've gotten multiple times is, what is that mark? That was put on Cain. And just to prepare you for the next many months of sermons that will probably generate, or sermon texts that will generate similar questions, my response is, I have no idea. (laughs) Some people think it's a tattoo. Some people think it's a haircut. Some people actually think the city that Cain's getting ready to build is God's protective mark upon Cain. I have no idea what it is. But we do know that he put it on him. But what you want to notice more importantly is the end of verse 16. Where does Cain go? East of Eden. Here's why that's significant. Where did Adam and Eve go at the end of chapter 3 when they're banished from the garden? East of Eden. 
The point is, increased sin drives people further away from God. Increased iniquity pushes people further away from God's presence, such is the life of this sinful son who's now about to build a sinful city. You know, we in America like to name things. Just think of the nicknames we've given to some of the, you know, historic major cities of our country. There's Philadelphia, which is a city of brotherly love. There's New York City, which is the big apple. Chicago is the what city? The windy city. Detroit is the what city? The motor city. Well, you know, in 1906, there's another town that got a nickname. It's kind of a desert town out in the middle of nowhere in the western plains called Las Vegas. It quickly became, because of its vice and iniquity that was promoted in that township, it was known as the what? The Sin City. And here it is. The original Sin City now comes from Cain in verse 17. Look at what happens. Cain knew his wife. Clearly that must have been a daughter of Adam and Eve along the way. She conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, verse 17 is quite important as we want to see this kind of ongoing, expanding nature of sin in the world. And you might not recognize it initially when you read verse 17. The first of which is it talks about Cain's increased self-rule. You remember, God told him in verse 12, you are to be a what? A wanderer and a nomad on the earth. Because of your sin, you get no home. But what's Cain doing quite quickly? Not just building a home. He's building a city for himself. Clearly saying, I will do whatever I want to do. Not just that, his self-interest is quite increased because he's naming the city after his son Enoch. You'll want to pay attention to this throughout Genesis. We'll find lots of people naming lots of cities. But what's striking is the godly seed that comes from the woman rarely if ever name a city after themselves or their children. But it's quite common for the seeded serpent to name cities, townships, places after themselves and their children. Because the godly line, uh, they belong in their interest only to the honor of Yahweh. Whereas the seed of the serpent, they're after sinful self-glory and vainglory and self-interest. And you see that just in one verse. And so he builds this city. And you just kind of scan your eyes through. Eventually, you get to this descendant of Cain in verse 18 named Lamech. Sin is increasing. Notice verse 19. Lamech takes two wives. Clear violation of God's creation ordinance in covenant marriage that was between one, wife, one man and one woman. One of these wives was named Adah. The other was named Zillah. And if you want to know just how evil Lamech is, just a few generations removed from Cain, just glance down at verse 23 through 24. Look what he says to his wives. And the right tone to take for this is Lamech threatening his wives with his sinful arrogance and brutality. He says in verse 23, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, and listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. The Hebrew word there for young man is speaking probably of a teenager. So how much damage would he actually have done to Lamech? And Lamech is saying, I just killed him because he touched me. If Cain's revenge, verse 24, is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. God's revenge on killing Cain was sevenfold. 
Here is Lamech accruing to himself this kind of rule and authority and power, saying, how much greater am I than God in my revenge on killing those who would come against me? Just a few generations removed. And notice what's happening with the seed of the serpent. A sinful son builds a sinful city, and the sinful family continues to grow. And so you're wondering along the way, the war has begun, this cosmic battle has commenced, and what's happening with the seed of the woman? Is there any light in the darkness? Yeah, there is. Look at verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. They called his name Seth. Seth means appointed one. So you want to see again clearly, I think for Eve, she's assuming here is now the serpent crusher. Yeah, this is the one that's going to stomp on Satan's head. For she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain was killed by him. And to Seth also was born a son named Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And I encourage you to underline verse 26 of chapter 4 for a variety of different reasons, not least of which is we want to understand significance of what it means. Many people have thought here is like the first instance of public worship in all of Scripture. It was with Enosh that public worship began. Or people have said it was with Enosh that public prayer began. Call upon the name of the Lord becomes this kind of metaphor and constant way of speaking about prayer throughout Scripture. I actually don't think either of those are right. Because the way that I would want to translate verse 26 is at that time people began to be called by the name of Yahweh. It's a legitimate translation of the Hebrew. At that time, people began to be called by the name of Yahweh. The point is, in context, in the overarching narrative of Genesis, there's a war at battle, and from this time forward, there was a line that belonged to Yahweh. And it came from Seth and his family. So what you see then is history starts to divide. You have Adam and Eve giving birth to Cain. His line is the seed of the serpent. Adam and Eve giving birth to Seth. His line is the seed of the woman. And the war is truly on at this point. A sinful son builds a sinful city. And now what you see in chapter 5 is a, a sinful race. A sinful race. Uh, Sunday evenings in the home of my youth were family time, as we called it, in the stone house. And it was largely a time where just trying to talk about things of the Lord, pray for one another, think about the coming week. And every so often we would play this Bible trivia game at the Stone House that was, you know, tongue-in-cheek with lots of cheekiness called Bible Trivia, just plain title, but the game where trivia is not trivial. And there were questions, 1,400 questions for kids, 4,000 questions for adults. And the older I got and the more I kind of understood Scripture, I realized how some of the stumpers in the trivia game always came from genealogies. Because the older I got, the more I became familiar with the Bible, I realized most Christians have no idea what to do with a genealogy. So we just kind of skip it over when maybe we're reading it in our daily reading plan. And here we come to the first extensive genealogy in the book of Genesis. And you might have come across it before and wondered, what is there for me in that genealogy? All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for our equipping in Jesus Christ. What about this? Well, there's two things you want to know about this genealogy. One about all genealogies in Genesis, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is there's 11 different kind of genealogical markers in Genesis, and they always are signifying a transitional moment in the story. 
moving from a concentration of one family to the next family. So you look at the beginning of chapter 5. We're still in Adam's family. Where are we, where are we by the end of chapter 5? We've moved on to Noah. And of course, chapters 6 through 9, even to some degree 10, dealing with Noah's family. But there's also something interesting in chapter 5 that you need to notice as this kind of secondary purpose, maybe even more immediate purpose for our attention this morning, is if you're, if you're chapter is divided off by paragraphs. Look at the last two words of almost every paragraph. Kids, you can pay attention to this two-word phrase, especially if you have the ESV in front of you. Almost every paragraph ends with two words, he died. What's the point? Outside of the garden, death is ruling. Outside of the garden, the penalty is falling. The curse is killing. People are dying because of Adam and Eve's sin. But did you notice, if you've ever read this chapter before, there's one person in the genealogy who doesn't die. You know, when we played this Bible trivia game, I figured out not long into it that there were two things from Genesis chapter 5 that often came up in this trivia that's not trivial. One of which is, who is the oldest man that ever lived? Who was the first man that never died? Well, you get both of them with chapter 5, verse 21 and following. Look at what we're told, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, oldest man who ever lived. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, There's a mercy of God in this genealogy to remind you that there are still people devoted to the Lord even while everyone is dying. That the the seed of the woman is being preserved and protected. You could go home later on today and trace this out. You take Adam, father of all humanity. I take our two families, Cain and Seth. Just begin to work down their descendants. Get to the seventh descendant on each line. On the seat of the serpent's side is lamentable Lamech. On the seventh line of the seat of the woman's side, it's Ernest Enoch. Do you see the contrast between these two families? One of threatening brutality to his two wives. One so holy that the Lord, Hebrews 11 verse 5 says, took him before he died. And maybe you have someone in your family that tends to like to deal with family trees. You know, go all the way back in history and figure out your descendants or where you came from. And along the way, it's almost as though they kind of function as a modern-day genealogist. And have you ever considered before if, like, that person was to come in a few generations and they're wanting to tell the story of your family past and they got to you? What might be a one-sentence description of you? that they would put down for generations to see. Don't you think it would be a great prayer that you would be like Enoch? All you need to know about this person is they walked with God. Or how about if we did Presbyterian genealogies of the North Texas Presbytery? And here's what you need to know about Redeemer Presbyterian Church. They were a people who walked with God. The war is afoot. The battle is raging. God is preserving His people. The enemy seems to be winning. Darkness is growing. Iniquity is abounding. Death is increasing. 
the seed of the serpent seems to have the final say by the end of chapter 5. But what we need to see as we begin to kind of close down our meditation on this text is how this great cosmic war is going differently than anyone would have expected all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. And to some degree, it's quite true of us today as the war continues to rage around us. Some of you know that in June of 1944, the Allied forces, they landed on D-Day on the Normandy beaches there in France, and they did so with this great optimism. There was a phrase that was kind of igniting their hopes as they're storming towards Germany. It said, Berlin by Christmas. And even after they faced this kind of stiff opposition there in France and had a hard time getting even through, still by July, Omar Bradley, commander of the U.S. forces, is telling his troops, you're going to eat dinner at home on Christmas Day. Now, if you know the story, on Christmas Day, what are they doing? They're fighting against Hitler's final last gap offensive in the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, they're going to win the war, but it certainly was going to go much more differently than they ever expected. And what we need to know about this war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman from our text today is, yes, God has promised victory to his people, but its fulfillment and consummation will come quite differently than they ever expected. Now, there's two things I want you to see as we begin to close this down. First of all, the victory won't come easily. Blood will be shed. Lives will be taken. The roaring lion will devour people and his desire to stop the promise coming to fulfillment. You need to recognize that if you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you belong to his family, he has enlisted you into a war. You are part of his army. Therefore, the victory that you are promised at the final last day when he returns again, that life we have in Jesus Christ is not an easy life. People are still taken. Blood is still shed. People are still killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. The victory still doesn't come easily. But maybe more pointed even to our text in certain ways is the victory won't come quickly. Now those of you who are better math students than me might add up the numbers of chapter 5. But if my math is correct, the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5, 1,056 years have passed in the blink of an eye. And there's still no hope of a Redeemer on the way. But God has said, a Redeemer is coming. Don't you know that so much of the Christian life often is little more than just being patient for God's promises to come to pass in your life? To wait on the Lord's sovereign grace to actually come to fulfillment as He says it will? 1,056 years going by in the blink of an eye. How often we are frustrated that a promise doesn't come to pass within just a few hours, let alone a few days. Abel shows up multiple times in the New Testament. Righteous Abel, he's called. 1 John 3 talks about Cain's unrighteousness and killing his brother, righteous Abel. But there's another time Abel shows up when it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know, thousands of years go by before the true seed of the woman finally shows up. And he crushes the serpent's head as the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, dies on the cross at the hill called Calvary, and he dies by spilling his blood. And as the author to the Hebrews reflects on Jesus' work, he says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What was the word that Abel's blood spoke according to chapter 4, verse 10? It was the cry for retribution. The author to the Hebrews says, Jesus, his blood, speaks 
a better word. What does it speak? A better word of salvation, not retribution. It's a better word of forgiveness. It's a better word of mercy. It's a better word of peace. It's a better word of eternal life. Abel was a shepherd who was killed for his faithful offering. Jesus is the good shepherd who is killed as the faithful offering to crush Satan's head and save God's people. There's one old pastor that was one time with a group of friends, and they were talking about the best way to kill sin, you know, kind of thinking about God's instructions to Cain, and they were thinking about, hey, how can we actually put sin to death? And one person says, meditate on death. I guess that's a good idea. Another person says, meditate on God's judgment on sin. A third says, meditate on the terrors of hell. A fourth says, meditate on the joys of heaven. A fifth says, meditate on the bloody suffering of Jesus Christ. And this old pastor said, he picked the choicest scheme. There's a word that is spoken that is better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus Christ cries out, the serpent has been crushed. I have conquered. I have the victory. And it's a spoken word that asks a question of you this morning. To which family do you belong? Which spiritual seed are you? There are only two families. There are only two lines. Always, constantly, ever since Genesis chapter 3 at war. And in which one are you? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that we'd all be found in Jesus Christ. That His blood would cover our sin, that it would pay the penalty for all of our disobedience. We thank You that He has indeed come and ushered in the final victory. Lord, we pray that You would hasten and hurry His return. That we might be able to live in a world without sin, without suffering, without grief, without mourning. That we might be able to live in sight of the King who is beauty. Father, we pray that we would know you, that we would love you, that you would even save us by Christ's blood according to your sovereign grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand together.